Welcome to the Public Morality. The Lincoln Project is a group of Republican strategists who have committed time and resources to defeating President Donald Trump. Many of their searing, well-produced advertisements have been viewed by millions online as well as television ads. My guest today, Stuart Stevens, is a member of the Lincoln Project who has taken that message to a literary platform. Stevens, a longtime Republican strategist, is author of the best-selling It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Stuart Stevens, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you, buddy. Great to be here. And first of all, congratulations on your new book. It was a great text. Thanks. Not a book I ever thought I'd write, but a book I felt like I had to write. Yeah, isn't that the truth for most with most authors? Though you never, you end up never thinking you're going to write the book that you end up writing, but you write it anyway. So, uh, I, I want to begin uh, this conversation with a you know, back in 2005, uh, Republican Chair Kill Melman offered uh, at the NAACP convention that the party had right. a better job of appealing to black voters. After the uh, Mitt Romney's uh, defeat in 2012, which you were very much a part of. You had a similar autopsy about the Republican Party. And then along comes Donald Trump. What happened, sir? Well, you know, I think going back to 1964, the, the great failure of the Republican Party has been to attract African-Americans. I mean, Eisenhower got almost 40 percent, then it dropped to 7 percent for Goldwater and never came back. Um, I, I think... Those of us who worked for President Bush, uh, 43, were very aware of this as a failure and uh, tried to address it. And as you say, Ken Melman you know, took the step of, of going to the NAACP and apologizing for the Southern strategy, um, which was an attempt to divide African-Americans from the Democratic Party. Um, the autopsy, so-called, um, after the Romney campaign, it was really two served two purposes. One was uh, an analysis of why we'd only won the popular vote in presidential races once since 1960, uh, 1988. 88, yes. Um, and that was in 2004, and I worked in that campaign for President Bush. Um, and, and the answer was pretty obvious. We needed to appeal to more non-whites. We needed to appeal to younger voters. We needed to appeal to uh, more women, particularly women who were unmarried or single moms. Um, but it was presented not just as a political necessity, but as a moral mandate that if you were going to earn the right to govern this big, confusing, contradictory country uh, that's changing rapidly, you needed to reflect it. Um, and then when Trump came along it was almost like there was an audible sigh of relief and that just got thrown out the window and it was like, okay, we can win the way, you know, with mostly white people. Um, and, and to me, it just showed the hollowness of, uh, the idea that there was something besides political necessity, uh, to appeal to non-white votes. Now I've spoken with a number of people, uh, on both sides of the political aisle, uh, some 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 of the uh, Republicans fall into your camp uh, uh, in opposition to President Trump, but but they but the one thing they they seem to agree on 
they, they hold to the belief that the removal of President Trump, whether it's this year or four years from now, will be the beginning of the healing of the Republican Party. Um, you say, uh, and it's all, it was all a lie, uh, the problem is much larger than the president in and, um, and these past four well, of years. Of course it is. Could you explain on that? Go ahead. Sure. Um, Trump, I, I, my view on this is not that Trump hijacked the Republican Party, but the Republican Party evolved that made a Donald Trump uh, or his uh, near-like uh, uh, inevitable that the party increasingly became a white party, increasingly became a party driven by white grievance. Um, so Trump, I think, looked at the party, analyzed that, and came and presented that. Um, the Trumpism is deeply ingrained in the party. Um, I mean, I, I'll give you a perfect little um, sign of that. You know, there's sort of another Republican Party out there we don't talk about much, which are these uh, very successful governors in northeastern blue states. Uh, Larry Hogan in Maryland, Phil Scott in Vermont, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. And I, I work for all those guys. Um, but they can't, as popular as they are, they can't even pick their own state party chairman. They're Trump people. And, you know, I mean, th that, that's just something that would have been unimaginable. A governor can't pick his own state party chairman. But it shows how deep uh, Trumpism has become. And, you know, you look at people who were thinking about running in 2004, Nikki Haley or you know, Ted Cruz. Uh, they've all just uh, bought into Trump. And, and I don't think that you can undo this. Um, you know, I use the look at the example of African-Americans in, in two, uh, 1964 when it, it fell to 7% because Goldwater was against the Civil Rights Movement, Civil Rights Act. So you could have made a case at the time um, that once the Civil Rights Act was passed, that African Americans in some substantial numbers would come back to the Republican Party because of mutual interest, uh, shared values, a, a cultural conservatism, a patriotism, a, um, entrepreneurship, um, but it didn't happen. It never came back. Uh, and, uh, you know, Barry Goldwater got 7%. Donald Trump got 7 to 8%. It hasn't changed. So um, I think the same thing is happening uh, with the Republican Party and a changing America that is increasingly non-white. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier ab about uh, the uh, the... Ken Melman, I mentioned Ken Melman in, 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 in the, in the post-Romney autopsy, and you, you, clar you, you designate that as a, as a moral mandate. Um, you could also argue that the, the last really moral mandate we had was the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Bill was the last time that there was a real moral mandate legislatively. And, um, and, then, and then Goldwater, as you write in your text, you know, famously said, uh, to a group of voters, you go hunting where the ducks are. So doesn't right. that sort of brand the, the party in some respects? Yes, I think it did. And, and um, that's why I think it was so important for the party to acknowledge it as a failure um, and, and to try to change and set that as a goal. I mean, the first step to change is to acknowledge failure. 
and inadequacies. And we used to talk about this a lot. We used to talk about the need for the party to be a so-called big tent. We don't hear that anymore. Um, Trump is, is, has shrunk the party, and, and quite literally. You know, when you look at these numbers of Trump having such high favorability with the Republicans, it's important to remember the Republican Party is growing smaller because a lot of people are independents and they're classified as Republican or Democrat based upon sort of self-identification. Which way are you leaning? Um, And the number of independents uh, who lean toward the Republican Party has decreased dramatically even in the last six months. I tell you something that that I saw that just blew me away. Of Americans who are 15 years old and under, the majority are non-white. Now, the odds are really good they're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. And I'll take that bet. <laughs> I think, that, I, I, yeah, I think that's just a death sentence for the Republican Party if it doesn't change, and the Republican Party gives no dis- indication that it desires to change. You mentioned uh, the Big Tent, and correct me if I'm wrong, the last Republican that really, I think, believed in his core, the Big Tent, was uh, former Congressman and HUD Secretary Jack Kemp. And um, I remember when Kemp was running in 88, he was sort of an anomaly talking about the very things that you're suggesting the party should have done. Well, listen, I, I, I think you're absolutely right that that is a direction that Jack Kemp passionately wanted to take the party. Um, I I would push back. I I think that that Governor Romney Mm -hmm. very much believed in a big tent. Um, And certainly George Bush. I mean, under Bush in 2004, we got up to a little over 40% of the Hispanic vote. Um, So... I, I think if you compare how Donald Trump ran as a candidate of anger, of divisiveness, um, attacking Mexicans, attacking Muslims, um, and now as he's running, you know, basically trying to scare uh, his vision of white suburbs by the idea that you know non-whites are going to move in which I think is a very antiquated notion of what the suburbs are today. Um, but, you know, Mitt Romney didn't do that. Um, I mean, famously, at a, one of the debates, when the Republican primary, uh, they had one of these awful raise-your-hand questions of who considers Barack Obama socialist, and Mitt Romney was the only one who didn't raise his hand. Um, so... And it's reflected at the end result. You know, on Election Day in 2012, Mitt Romney and President Obama both had favorables of around 50 percent. So they weren't candidates that people hated. Um, it was a very different environment. I got to ask you, because uh, President uh, Ronald Reagan was, and uh, I had this conversation with David Gergen uh, in addition, but uh, Gergen tells the story of how he, searched and searched and searched for this infamous welfare queen uh, in Chicago. So my question to you is, was the welfare queen apocryphal? Uh, was it, if I, was it well, a point from mm-hmm. your, your, your text? Was it all a lie? Or how do you see the welfare queen? 
Well, as I understand it, um, there was um, an article, interestingly enough, in Jet magazine about a woman who uh, had multiple IDs and was receiving uh, abnormally large, illegally, Welfare payments. Just just a moment, Stephen. Stephen. For the record, uh, Jet Magazine was a weekly uh, black publication that that pretty much uh, marketed specifically to black interests. Go, go, go. Right. So uh, just a little bit of research I did into this, and and certainly mine was, you know, of the Googling uh, variety, which is always limited. Um, that seemed to be there seemed to be a case of this that got greatly exaggerated. Um, and as I remember it, I don't have the book in front of me. I write about the difference between what uh, Ronald Reagan said and what the actual case circumstances of that case tended to be. Um, so it's one of these things that grows larger in the retelling. Yeah, in, in your book, I think I think I think it was as I marked it down, I think it was page 17 you talk about it. I think the numbers were the woman that you cited from Jet magazine um, defrauded on $8,000 uh, in mm-hmm. benefits versus okay. the $150,000 the way the <laughs> story gets difference. told. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's you know uh, I'm from Mississippi and not great at math, but that seems to be a lot larger. So I, I guess more importantly than than it being put out there, uh, talk about in your view how was how that statement was received. Well, you know, the, one of the great ironies of this is that there has been a largely Republican, largely conservative attitude that uh, people who are receiving welfare. Uh, or a predominantly uh, non-white, which is not true. By far, the greatest number of people who are receiving federal assistance, welfare, are white, um, and that it reflected some uh, larger uh, moral failure. You know, to be poor uh, was a, a moral failure, not a condition of. The economy, a condition of your status in life, condition of events beyond your control. And, you know, what, what strikes me is really the most ironic about this is if you look at these predominantly red states like my native Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Arkansas, South Carolina, they all receive huge amounts as a state from the federal government, much more than what they pay in taxes. I mean, in Mississippi, 40% of the entire state budget is money they get from the federal government. So in the largest sense, the the, the welfare queens are these southern red states, you know, which which nobody seems to really talk about. I mean, if if you cut off those federal payments to South Carolina, Arkansas, I mean, these states would be in a depression. And for all the... uh, the fun that uh, politicians in those states like to attack people in California or New York, you know, they're the ones that are paying more in taxes than they are receiving back, and they're the ones who are really supporting these states. 
and it's just a, a deep uh, irony um, and a misperception that I think is very toxic. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Stuart Stevens, Republican strategist and author of the best-selling It Was All a Lie, how the Republican Party became Donald Trump. Stuart, you, you, you mentioned earlier about the, the changing demographics of, of, of the country, and how far back mm -hmm. were you aware that the demographics were changing, and at some point the discomfort of change would become mandatory for party survival? Um, you know, I, I can't really pinpoint it. I, I know in the Bush campaign of 2000, when Governor Bush was running, um, we, we talked a lot about Hispanic voters. It was a, a personal passion of the governors. And it, it's true that, you know, the Hispanic-Anglo mix of culture in Texas is very profound. I mean, it, it's so culturally deep. We have Tex-Mex food. Um, so the, the Republican candidates in Texas tend to do better with Hispanics. I mean, even Ted Cruz could get up to 40% in the state of Hispanics. You know, there's just so many families that, you know, a father-in-law or a mother-in-law is Hispanic or Anglo or Hispanic, that, that there's just the inter, intermingling of the cultures. Plus, it, it's seen as a positive. Hispanic culture in Texas is seen um, culturally and music and sports and food as being a positive. So this was something that Governor Bush cared about and deeply. And when you looked at the... Um, national numbers, Hispanics are the largest growing uh, non-white uh, demographic. So it was clear that you needed to appeal to Hispanics. Um, but I, I don't know when this really hit me, but I, I'll tell you a fascinating statistic, or at least it's fascinating to me. So in 1980, Ronald Reagan wins, what, 44 states, right? Mm -hmm. Sweeping landslide. He got 55% of the white vote. You cut to 2008, John McCain runs. He gets 55% of the white vote and loses. And that, to me, is just a snapshot of how the country has changed. And all those changes have only accelerated since 2008. You, you I mean, you know, for all this talk of, of, of Donald Trump voters and, you know, this industry of writing about Donald Trump, and, and one way Donald Trump won for one simple reason, he ran in a year in which a Republican could win with 46.1%. Mitt Romney got 47.2% and lost. So why was that? Uh, well, third party vote increased, it doubled from 2012 to 2016. And also, uh, for the first time in 20 years, non-white vote declined. So, you know, I, I think this year, uh, I, I would not be surprised to see record non-white vote, given uh, the national discussion over Black Lives Matter and racial uh, and equities. So the, the, I, I think, take Wisconsin. Um, 
Mitt Romney lost Wisconsin by seven points. Donald Trump won by just under one. But Mitt Romney got more votes than Donald Trump. And Trump was able to win because 50,000 fewer voters showed up in the greater Milwaukee area. Now, I don't think that's going to happen again this year. Uh, Well, post-Trump, whenever that may be, and you sort of touched right. on, you, you, you touched on it earlier, and I want to come back to it. How long, in your estimation, can the Republican Party remain viable when it has, as you stated, um, has not, is only once won the, uh, the popular vote for a national election since 1988? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a great question and an impossible question to answer. I look at the Republican Party kind of like the subprime mortgage crisis. It's easier to predict what happens and how long it takes. And it could be Donald Trump wins this year. Um, but there's an inevitability to it. So, I mean, look at California. Not that long ago, California was the beating heart of the Republican Party. Right. And it was like the, the electoral citadel. All, all victory was based on carrying California. And now the Republican Party is in third place. Not second, third. Democrats and independents, and then Republicans. And there's really no big, major public policy issues uh, being decided in California that the Republican Party plays much of a role. It's become a minority party without much relevance to the governing of the state. And I think that's where the Republican Party is headed nationally. You'll still carry certain areas in the same way in California. There's pockets of where Republicans do well. But I don't I don't think it'll happen until the Republican Party can decide what it stands for. I mean, right now, if you told me, what, what does the Republican Party stand for? And held a gun to my head. I'd tell you just to go ahead and shoot. I have no idea, except Donald Trump. And, you know, I wrote a pretty bleak book about the Republican Party and finished it about a year ago. But I have to tell you, man, I think I was overly optimistic. I mean, I never in a million years would have thought the party wouldn't even try to pass a platform. That the only platform would be whatever Donald Trump wanted it to be. I mean, that's just breathtaking um and it, it's it's a completely it's just an acknowledgement that there's nothing to the to the core of the party uh, it, 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 you know it, in many respects uh it was all a lie i i took it partly um to your to your credit by the way uh, as a, as a mea culpa, it wasn't what they were doing. It's, it's, I, I read it as, well, this is what we mm-hmm. were doing. Um, to, that, to, you know, to, to, you know, to that extent, though, in fairness, politics by its nature, I'm not talking about governing, I'm talking about political campaigns, by their very nature, it's about winning. So that sort of makes it um, amoral in some respects. So, you, I mean, you're more apt to read... Machiavelli's The Prince than you are to read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. So my question to you, when winning is the goal, doesn't that, regardless of party, 
blind one to the moral implications. Let's say in, in, in the Republican case, you look the other way with when Reagan went to Philadelphia, Mississippi, and said, I believe in states' rights, or the Willie Horton commercial, or the Jesse Helms hands commercial. Would, would that be a fair assessment? Well, I think it's one of these things in life where degree is important. And I, I think many campaigns, Democrat and Republican, are guilty of going too far. I mean, you, you go back to the Obama-Romney campaign. The Obama campaign ran ads that basically accused Mitt Romney of murder over his health care policy. Um, I don't think many people who worked for the Obama campaign today would look at Mitt Romney and want to say the same thing. But it's a campaign. Um, you exaggerate. I think, though, that just as in life, um, going 110 miles an hour in a 60-mile-an-hour zone is worse than going 75 miles an hour. I think degree matters. And I think that when you fall into areas of using race, uh, it is particularly toxic and destructive to a, a national fabric. Um but when I wrote this book, you're right. I, you know, there's there's a certain version of books written by people in Washington that, you know, basically fall into the if only they had listened to me category. And John Bolton's latest book is sort of that. Uh, I, I couldn't say that because they did listen to me. I mean, I was, you know, really good at what I did. I helped elect Republicans in over half the country, five Republican presidential campaigns. And one of the things that drew me to the Republican Party was a sense of personal responsibility. And that used to be just a bedrock principle of the Republican Party. And now, of course, Donald Trump is always the victim. And the party is the victim's party. Um, so if I actually believed in personal responsibility, it seemed to me if I was going to write a book, it should begin with personal responsibility. And... Uh, I, I really tried to examine that and um, ask tough questions. Again, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Stuart Stevens, Republican strategist and author of the best-selling It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Stuart, if we, um, since you, the way you framed it in the book, let's use 1964 as the benchmark. Mm -hmm. It seems the Republican Party embraced, my words, an ideological certainty that sort of morphed into rhino, which is Republicans in name only, that, that begin, which I think created a form of cannibalism. It first took on the Rockefeller Republicans. I would even add that it, that it, in the, it also had an impact on the re-election fortunes of George H.W. Bush. And ultimately, yes. it became a litmus test for whoever... Who, whoever may have been conservative, uh, but if they weren't conservative the way that group said they ought to be conservative, uh, uh, they, they were discounted. Uh, so doesn't that uh, negate the prospects, how we began this conversation about the party needing to expand if you're engaged in that kind of cannibalism that I'm talking about? Um, you know, it's a really fascinating question. After 1964, you know, the complete disaster of an election 
um, for the 1966 midterm elections, Time magazine ran a cover that talked about the future of the Republican Party. And it was mainly moderate governors and senators, um, you know, like George Romney. Um, there was a case to be made that the party went too far in 64 in extremism and that the natural correction to that would be for the party to go in a more moderate direction. I mean, it just kind of makes sense. Um, and for a while it happened. Um, you had uh, pro-choice Republican governors of big states, California, New York, Pennsylvania. Um, but then the party just began to shrink. Um, and, and now, I mean, you have a Republican president attacking uh, the Bushes. You, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me. When, when George Bush was elected in 2000, his focus was education. It's what he really cared about passionately. And the first big piece of legislation was No Child Left Behind, which when you look at the, go back and look at the photograph of the signing of that bill in the Oval Office and Ted Kennedy is over his right shoulder. I mean, just that's unimaginable today. I mean, that would be like something you would submit in like a Republican war crimes trial. You know, I mean, here he is with Ted Kennedy. Um, and it just shows, I think, how far the party has, in my view, fallen and hurt itself. You know, on that note, it, it, it was not illegal, but large sums of money were raised for the Trump inauguration. I think it was more than anyone else had ever raised in the history of the inauguration. Um, there are numbers about how much was spent, how much has remained, and the whereabouts uh, of the excess are, remain unknown. Um, I would imagine that if that were a Democrat and, um, and Congress were the and Republicans were in the majority, that, that behavior would be investigated. So my, my question, how do you account for the acceptance internally of obvious norm erosions? Uh, it's a question I ask myself, you know, 50 times a day. And I, I don't understand it. Um, I, 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 you know, I know a lot of these Republicans, and they're good people. I mean, if they live next door to you, they'd be good neighbors. If they saw you broken down on the road, you know, they wouldn't hesitate to stop and help. And yet, we have come to this moment with Trump when there is just a complete moral failure. Now, you know, most of us in life don't go through life looking for moral tests. At least I don't. <laughs> but sometimes you can't avoid them. And... I don't understand it. I don't understand it on multiple levels. Um, they're heir to the greatest generation. You know, people like my father, who was like hundreds of thousands of others, you know, spent three years fighting in the South Pacific, 28 island landings. My, you know, his brother, my uncle, who was machine gunned in Europe and never really recovered. And that's the legacy that was handed to these politicians. And Courage isn't standing up to Donald Trump. Courage is getting out of the boat when the guy in front of you got shot. And that's what they did. And these Republicans can't even stand up to Donald Trump. 
I mean, look at the look at the the, the Trump nomination uh, on the grounds of the White House, which is a hundred percent illegal. A hundred percent. I mean, I've shot in the White House before, and the, the degree to which we would go to to adhere to the law was extraordinary. And then not because you were going to get caught particularly, but just because it was wrong. I just don't understand it. I, I, I well, here's your. Ch- and one of the things, oh, sorry, you know, one of the things I don't understand is, you know, most politicians have pretty big egos, right? Which doesn't bother me. Great musicians, artists, athletes have big egos, but why don't they see how they're going to be remembered? And I don't mean in twenty years. I mean like in two years. And why do they not see that? How much better they would look in a historical sense, their legacy, if they stood up to Trump, they fought for something. So what if they lose a primary? So what? I don't get it. Uh, to, to, to that, that's a perfect segue for my next question that um, this may not have been your intent, but this is one, to take, one of my takeaways from It's All a Lie after reading it is that I don't know when, but when I look at the major issues um, confronting the nation, uh, let's just say climate change, health care, trade, mm-hmm. economic viability, our standing in the world, let's just take those for starters. Would it be fair to say the Republican Party since 1964 has methodically positioned itself so that they will essentially have no voice on those key issues that I just articulated. Did I go too far on that? Well, listen, what's happening now, I never would have thought would would happen. I would have said that Republicans would stand up, and they haven't. So, you know, I don't think I'm really a a judge of to say what is too far. Um. But but uh, it's pretty clear where the country's headed. I mean, take take health insurance, right? National. I mean, in twenty years, is America still going to be the only Western democracy that doesn't have national health insurance? Of course not. And what that is going to be is going to be decided in the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party. I mean, the Republican Party is just going to be saying no. They've had a chance to to participate in that discussion, and they've turned it down. So uh, they just, you know, I, I really look at this, and people say, well, aren't there you know, a third party in America? And I would say, well, there kind of is a third party. There's sort of two parties inside the Democratic Party, say a Sanders AOC wing and a, a Biden wing. And I think inside that debate within the Democratic Party, that's where, where the future of the country is going to be decided. It's not going to be just, I mean, Republicans, I think, are just like California. They're just going to be irrelevant in this discussion. Well, the, the irony there is, and I, I want to go back to the 64 Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. The irony there, were it not for Everett Dirksen, the, the Senate Republican, the majority leader yes. at the time, there would not have been, those acts would not have passed. Nope, you're absolutely right. No, and... and you know, if you look at the Civil Rights Act, it really broke down not by party, Democrat and Republican, as much as it did geography. And a lot of Democratic uh, 
senators and congressmen opposed it. Uh, and later they became Republicans, or they were followed by Republicans, um, where Northeastern Republicans supported it. Um, it was really a, a legacy of the South. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I, it, it's something... It pains me deeply to see, just on a personal level, that, that the party has become this. And I, I don't think it had to be this way. I think it could have gone in a different direction. Um, but it's a great failure. I feel like I'm watching a friend drink themselves to death. It's just very sad. I, I, and go ahead. You know, I, I, I think it's just going to get worse. Ironically, it was the Republican Party that replaced the Whigs um, in the 1850s as the major other political party besides the Democrats. Is that going to happen again? I mean, I know you don't want to predict, but do you worry that, that that could be an outcome here? I think the Republican Party, I mean, if I could predict, I would predict the Republican Party is going to continue to lose nationally, that we're in for a period of center-left government, at a certain point, that center-left government will go too far and that there will be a reaction to it and some kind of morally-based Republican Party, conservative center-right party, will emerge. And odds are that'll be called the Republican Party. But, you know, I, I think parties that change is, is not a sign of weakness if, if it changes in a positive direction. I think you can make a good case that the Clinton campaign in 2016 was in many ways running against the Clinton campaign of 1992. When uh, putting 100,000 cops on the street in 1992 was seen as mass incarceration in 2016. Uh, ending welfare as we know it, which famously was a Bill Clinton phrase, um, became uh, more about social economic inequalities. Um, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a party changing. Uh, the Republican Party has changed in a negative way. I suppose it can change in a positive way. Um, but I think it's going to take a long time. A, a long time. You know, a generation or more. Because there's just... There's no, there's no, if you go back and you read George Bush's 2000 acceptance speech at the Republican convention, I mean, that thing reads like an artifact from a lost civilization. It's all about humility and service and compassion. I mean, that, that message couldn't win 10% in the Republican primary today. And I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Nobody wants it to change. That I know, you, you know, where's the anti-Trump serious Republican Party? You know, there's Mitt Romney and a few others, and that's it. The title of the book, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Stuart Stevens has been my guest. And Stuart, I want to thank you, sir, for joining me today on the Public Round. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Um, here, here's to better days ahead. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, 
B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us on the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.